So I have good news and bad news. First, well, they're both at the same time. Everybody tested negative, except for one person. <laughs> but that person hasn't yet tested. So most likely we're okay. Uh, is Steve M. here? Okay. <laughs> so if you're Steve M., don't think you're in the room, uh, yeah, just please call the red phone to test. So we're hoping that Steve will test and then we can all rest uh, easy. COVID. Thank you all for testing. So I want to begin this talk with a poem. And it's called The Second Music by Annie Lightheart. Now I understand that there are two melodies playing, one below the other, one easier to hear, the other lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades. Yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips, as the sound of the names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover. If the truth of our lives is what is playing, the telling is so soft that this mortal time this irrevocable change becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. The telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. So I want to talk about that second music. But first a story. So right after I graduated from college, I had already been meditating for some years, and I went on pilgrimage with a couple of teachers and a whole group of us, there were about 20, and we went to first Bodh Gaya in India, which is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And so now it's a very beautiful garden, and the centerpiece of this garden is a huge tree, The sacred tree is called a Bodhi tree, and it's said to be the fourth generation of the same tree under which the Buddha sat. So it's enormous. It's very big, this tree, and there's a big sacred stupa, and then all of these gardens well-tended around it. And I remember going there early in the morning. It's a pilgrimage spot, so there were people from all over the world, all different kinds of Buddhists, 
streaming early in the morning before the sun rose down into these gardens. And we would all do our puja, our practice, early around that tree, which included bowing and the refuges and precepts were being chanted over loudspeaker. So you could hear Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. And just this sense of community, like we were doing different practices, but as the sun rose, the Tibetans would come around with their butter tea and their uh, balap, which is their round bread, for breakfast. We'd all have breakfast there, just sitting under the tree. It was so beautiful. I remember just being so young and uplifted by this sense of uh, belonging, actually. It's like a deep sense of belonging in me. So I think as human beings, you can see if this is true as I'm talking about it, we have this deep longing for something bigger than ourselves. And you can call that the sacred, you could call it mystery, meaning even. So we're looking for connection. Maybe that's part of your intention for being here, maybe not. Maybe it's curiosity. But I think there's something very deep and very uh, intrinsic in being a human being. Maybe a sense of listening for that second music. And I've heard many of you share already in this retreat that there's also a sense of loneliness and isolation. That even though here we all are doing our practice together, it's silent, can feel very alone. And I think this loneliness, we've heard, you know, many pandemics going on now. Loneliness is one of them. Anxiety. I think this is maybe part of what we inherit in in mainstream culture. Sense of separateness, aloneness. Another part of our culture is that we're really logical and rational. And this could be actually why you like mindfulness. Because it can feel very rational, you know, we're looking for results, how can I prove what I know, what's the timing, how much time do I have to put in every day, you know, and more and more there's science that says, well, mindfulness will lower your blood pressure and it decreases your stress and it increases your sense of altruism. So this is actually intrinsic in what the Buddha taught also, it's like come and see for yourself, check it out. Is ehi pasiko in Pali. Don't believe my words on blind faith. Come and see, really look. And there is a really beautiful, almost scientific orientation to that. Here, right here, is the best laboratory for discovering what it is to be a human being. And I think for some of us who have experienced dogmatism or blind faith or have actually some harm from more sense of dogmatic religious beliefs, this can be a huge relief. Ah, I don't have to believe anything. I can really try it on for myself. And the Buddha said, you know, he encountered a lot of dogmatism in his day. And always he's advising, look, see what your own heart says. You feel that kind of relief? And it's it's almost an empowerment, really. Like you have everything you need to find your way. I think we love that in the West. 
I really think we love that. Oh, great. I have the power and the agency to figure this out, and I'm going to. So that is part of this tradition. This is really what we inherit, this scientific orientation to figuring it out on our own. But I think for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, there is that sense of being under the Bodhi tree, a call to something bigger. So my very first introduction to Buddhism was Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart. Yeah, maybe some of you know that book. Really, kind of, I was a sophomore in college. It, when I read it, it was like she was speaking to all the sufferings in me, and it just felt like coming home. Like stuff I had already known somehow before, and I just needed to remember. Some of you may have felt that. So this sense of heartfelt longing. Bruni spoke to this beautifully last night. Like, it's okay to have this healthy kind of desire. This is probably what brought you here. So it's not just rational. It's not just however many hours I've clocked will lead to my well-being. It might also be something much more mysterious, much deeper, like moving from the head center, maybe down into the belly center. That kind of knowing that brings us to the path often. So Aya Kema, who's a wonderful grandmother in our tradition, German by birth, is a nun, Theravada nun. She says, we have a heart and a mind. The mind is the thinking analytical part, and the heart has emotions and feelings. If we don't use both, we're missing out. Half of ourselves is not actually engaged. We can't do this with half of a person. Whatever we do, whether it be meditation or anything else, it has to be done wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. And there's even this word in the Satipatthana Sutta we've been teaching, atapi, which can be translated as ardor or wholeheartedness. The sense of giving yourself fully. Maybe you felt some of this. Actually, one of us, we received a very beautiful note one of you wrote. It really says, like, I love the practice. I love it. I want to give myself to it. This is what I felt as a sophomore in college. Like, yes. And I think in the note there was something about, like, is that okay? (laughs) I want to say yes. It's almost painful, that sense of wholeheartedness. Like, I, I'm not even quite sure what I want. <laughs> like, we're talking about freedom. We're talking about happiness. In one of the groups today, we're like, what is that actually? What does that mean? So we don't actually know, honestly. And still, we want it. We want it. And that's okay. In fact, that's necessary. Because this is hard. Have you noticed? It's very difficult, this practice that you're doing. It's so brave, and it's so hard, this boring practice that you're doing. So we need, I mean, we have it. In some ways, we just have to recognize that we have it. Why are you still here? You're still here. have been doing this, and it's hard. And there is a deep sense, I think, of inner knowing or yearning for something that we don't even quite know what it is. That's the heart. 
That's almost, you could call it love. If we lose this, or we forget it, or we don't quite see it, we value the mind, sometimes we're in danger of getting too dry. You know, have you felt this? The practice can get very mechanistic. We're counting our minutes and hours. Maybe you do this at home. It's on your to-do list. It's just another chore. And we forget. We forget why we're doing it. Or maybe it is really just about the numbers. Like you have those things that monitor your heart rate or your blood pressure. And you're like, okay, good. I'm doing good. Am I 20 minutes in? Check. Now I'm going for a run. Right? I mean, that's not bad. That's good. We're going for health. That's great. But sometimes it can feel like, why? It's like just, I'm like following some kind of authority figure that's telling me this is how you do to live your best life. But where is the meaning, actually? We lose that vitality. There's such an aliveness and freshness, like Andrea's poem. Every day is a poem. How do we remember that? How do we tap in to this deeper sense of inspiration? And these words we use in our culture aren't very popular, like reverence or maybe even devotion. Because we're mostly a scientific, logical culture, we, we don't, we're wary. <laughs> you might even notice in your body if I say this word of like devotion. I don't know. I don't know about that. So I'm going to talk some about that, just my own experience of devotion. And the same ehipasiko, come and see for yourself, applies to this too. So the Buddha actually said there's different types. There's different personalities. Some people are wisdom types. Those are the ones who are like, I'm really going to figure this out. I'm interested in all of the philosophy behind this. And you use your bright intellect to get there. That's good. If you're a wisdom type, keep using that. Other types of us are devotional types. He named it. And we are the ones who are like, I just want to keep bowing. I love chanting, right? Bruni and I, we're like, chanting, we love it. We want to give ourselves to something. That's okay, too. You might be a devotional type. You love kirtan, you know? That's okay. So name different types. So you can kind of see as you listen, okay, what uplifts your heart? What really feels like it's calling to you personally? Maybe it's devotion. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's reverence, the sacred. Maybe just none of that really resonates, which is really fine. So just to highlight some of the stories in the suttas that emphasize this aspect, it's beautiful, the story of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. You know, he was assailed by all the same hindrances that you heard about. He had sense desire and fear, anxiety, restlessness. He probably fell asleep a little bit under that tree. And then doubt was the biggest one. You know, this demon came and said, it's not your seat. Who are you to get enlightened anyway, right? Have you felt that? Do you ever really allow yourself the possibility that you could also fully be awake? So he had that same question. But then what he did is he placed his hand on the earth. Such a beautiful gesture you can see in some statues. Like he's touching the earth. And the story goes, this is beautiful, epic tale where the, the earth shook in response to his power. And that was when he got enlightened. He had the accompaniment of the earth as his witness in his freedom. So even there, maybe he felt alone and isolated. 
but he had the earth, the big earth, witnessing underneath him, supporting his process. So he had this big realization, whatever that is, whatever freedom really is, which we can ask and look for ourselves. What, what was it that he saw? But something really happened, and he spent some time hanging out in the woods, kind of feeling like, okay, now what, what, what is it to be awake? And it's said, you know, he was saying, this is peaceful, this is sublime, this sense of being alive now. But he also said, who is there that I can revere? You know, he had studied with all of the greatest teachers of his day, and yet he looked and he said, they, none of them know what I know now. And it said it's actually, it's painful for him. He says, gosh, it's hard, it's painful not to have something bigger to devote myself to now. Isn't that interesting? Like an awake being also had that longing for something bigger. So he asked that question and then he says to himself, but there is this Dhamma, this truth, this way to which I have become fully awakened. And he decides this is what now I can revere as important. I can devote myself to this, this Dhamma, this truth. You see, there's actually the coming together of the science and the love right there. Right? Science is about the pursuit of truth. And what if we let our hearts really love the truth in the same way that he did? I think the other part of this loneliness that we've been feeling is that we often feel a kind of, um, I don't know, I hear a lot of people talk about this sense of meaninglessness or emptiness in the mainstream world, right? The kind of formula of like, just you get a house and a partner and good job and you'll be happy. That's the formula, right? And that was definitely the existential angst I was feeling in college was like, I'm following all the rules. I'm getting straight A's. I'm doing all the things. And there's this deep sense of loneliness, of, of like, there, there's got to be something more than just this. And now, I think, especially for young people, but all of us, like here we are in a world that's burning. There's all of this crisis and chaos and confusion. We don't quite know what to do. And our culture gives us this sense of like, well, if you just go out and buy some things, then you'll be good, right? What we're supposed to be devoted to is so much about image and materialism, consumerism. So unsatisfying, actually. If you look at that, like, wow, that formula really doesn't work. Have you tried it? How is it going for you? I would actually really love to know. For In my experience, it's like drinking salt water. It's like the more you drink, the more thirsty you are. So here, it's in the teaching too. The Buddha's first teaching, he was in the woods hanging out. Then he went and he found five of his friends. And they asked him to teach them, actually. And so he, the very first thing... This is interesting. The very first thing he chose to teach them was about devotion. He said, as humans, 
we have this unexamined, habitual tendency to devote ourselves to the wrong things. He said, first, there's an extreme of we devote ourselves, we bind ourselves to sensual happiness. We're so devoted to just getting the pleasant. Have you noticed that? Just got to line up every pleasant moment I can here, and then I'm going to have a good retreat. Just what are the pleasant things, the best walking route? Right? Oh, the sunlight, the dawn, the sunset, got to go get that. Right? Even the small things, it's not bad to love beauty. That's not bad. But to notice how we are devoting with this kind of false belief that that's going to solve the problem. And then he said the other extreme is that we devote ourselves, we bind ourselves to, here's this kind of ancient language, to sense mortification. So in his day, that was about asceticism, not eating, not sleeping, and doing all these extreme practices. I would argue, this is actually really what my friend Oren J. Sofer, he says that the current modern day form of sense mortification is psychological. It's internalized. This self-criticism, this even cruelty, harshness that we have inside, that's the mortification that he's talking to. We commit ourselves, we devote ourselves to that kind of harsh inner critic. Anybody notice that while you're here? It's so painful. That's kind of like more painful than anything else. So he said these are the extremes to avoid. Be aware of how you're devoting yourselves to these. And then he said, what I found was this middle way between those two. What is it in the middle that we can devote ourselves to? So in in some of the groups, you've, you've highlighted the fact that I didn't finish my story about the heart pounding. I kind of left you as like a cliffhanger. Like, what happened? <laughs> so I'm sorry about leaving you with tenterhooks. I'm going to give you the full story now. So I had wanted to do this long retreat since I had first read Pema Children. She had talked about doing a long retreat. And then I met my other uh, teachers really early on. And they had just come out of their own three-year retreat in the Vajrayana tradition. And I just, I heard all the stories and I wanted that. That was that deep kind of longing when I was very young. But I was in college and I was like still really devoted to the cultural script of like, but I have to get this degree. I mean, that makes sense. I had to figure out a livelihood. And it just felt so far off, like... How do I do this in our culture that doesn't really include going away for three years? You know? So it was, it was a painful kind of like living with this rub for a long time. I like psh, did two other graduate degrees and I was a teacher for, in a high school for a while in college, like trying to just figure out how do I, like, do I save money for this? My teacher was like, you need to learn Tibetan. And it all just felt really kind of unrealistic and far away, but it's still this kind of low burn. And then, this is now many years later, it was maybe 20, I want to say 2016, uh, my partner, who also was like very, he's very fiery, he's like, okay, we're going to do this together. We went and we talked to our teacher, Mingya Rinpoche. Maybe some of you have heard of Mingya Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. So we told him we really want to do this retreat, but here's all the obstacles. You know, we need to make a livelihood, and it seems kind of unrealistic, and we have elderly parents, and can't go away for that long. And, and Rinpoche was great. He was like, great, good to do long retreat. Yes. 
And you should save for retirement. <laughs> that was his response to us. And we came out of that interview like, what, what did he just say? Like, did, was his advice for a long retreat really to save for retirement? That was what he told us. And when we talked to him more, it, it was like he, he said, you know, I have all these students. They go away. They're so naive. They want to do this. And then they end up without health insurance, you know, and they're aging. They don't have a place to live. And he said, in our day, you really have to be responsible. And in that practice instruction, I felt so much compassion. Like he could really see the reality that we were facing. And he wanted to help us do it in a way that wasn't dangerous. Or extreme. There's the extremes again. So he, all the way through this, has helped us plan and supported us to do this kind of non-traditional, traditional, uh, semi-monastic, semi-secluded, also working three-year retreat. That's what he did. So supportive all the way through. He's very tech-savvy, so his support was through WhatsApp messages. (laughs) So I would send him a voicemail. He would send, he would respond back. So dear, so dear. But just that sense of being seen and understood, so important for this part of me that longed to do this kind of uh, unconventional thing. So hence the time in the cabin, some working, some lot of intensive practice, time in the cabin, my heart was beating, I called the doctor, she was like, it's probably just panic. And then talking to Rinpoche, he's like, take hot baths, jump rope, eat protein. That was his advice. Like Tibetan grandma. Are you getting enough to eat? So sweet. Anyway, what I discovered along the way was there was a lot of unprocessed, early, early infant childhood trauma. I was, I was quite ill as a child, and I hadn't really processed that in my practice, in my body. So it was just an energetic kind of process. And I told a group today that really pairing the practice with a lot of relational therapy and relational work, insight dialogue and diamond approach, all this has been really important for me to kind of have both, have both. And I think that's really important for all of us. So really most of this practice, this retreat was doing just what you're doing, befriending the moment. Oh, I'm feeling really scared. This pounding heart, that's what they call panic. And it's hard. It's hard to be alone at night. But this kind of accompaniment, like learning, oh, I can accompany myself. I can draw on the earth. I can call my friends, right? Dear spiritual friends, support, support, allowing, allowing. So I'll speak more about this tomorrow in terms of working with emotions, but it's that ardency, that wholeheartedness that allows us to be with the grief that's here. Because I know there's a lot of grief in this room. And there's also numbness and fear and also joy. There's all kinds of feelings. And we need this wholeheartedness to accompany ourselves. So Suzuki Roshi, he says, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely like a good bonfire, leaving no trace of yourself. I think this is what the practice is asking. Mary Oliver says that attention, just this tending to the moment as we've been doing, she says attention is the beginning of devotion. 
So what are we paying attention to? And there's been lovely questions about, okay, we're anchoring to the body or the breath, but what about awareness? You know, and what is, I love this question about what does anchoring to my feet have to do with freedom? So there's this phrase, yoni so manasikara, that means that it's translated as a wise attention. Wise attention. We want to devote ourselves in a wise way. Sometimes that means feeling your feet. Sometimes that means breathing. But other times that means orienting to something different. And I love this phrase, Yoni, so Manasikara, because in it is this sense of origin. Like we're orienting to the essence of things. We're attending to the beginning, the origin. Where, what is most important? What does it mean to be alive in this body, in this moment? So we need to attend to this. We're not just attending to the body randomly because we know if we feel the feet and the breath, this is a portal for learning about truth. Yoni so manasikara, attending, honoring, like what's most important here? Could call it a devotion to the wholeness of the moment, a fullness of presence. So a distinction also that came up in the groups today I want to name. We've been really guiding you thus far in the retreat around a kind of anchoring practice where you're anchoring to an object. We've used this language, whatever object it is, body, breath, sound, thoughts. That grows samadhi. That's a whole realm of practice where we're gathering our mind, we're growing concentration. Why are we doing that? To have the steadiness to then anchor not to the content of your experience, but the process of what's happening. So the objects, doesn't matter then. You can anchor to whatever it is in the moment. But you're noticing, oh, but what's the characteristic of this thing? What's the process here? And this is what I want to talk about. This is the truth that we're devoted to. And we need both styles. We need the samadhi style and we need the vipassana, the insight, the wisdom style of practice. And at lunch, we were talking, the teachers were saying, it's like this, I think Bruni said, it's like an accordion. You're like, sometimes samadhi, sometimes insight. You know, and it's an art to know, do I need more steadiness in the mind or do I need more investigation in the mind? And you can ask yourself this. We need the samadhi in order to look at the process of things because otherwise we'd be like, like Jess is saying, we'd be like all over, right? We can't notice what's true. But if we just do the samadhi part because it just feels so good, we forget the, the reason why we're practicing. So we are dancing. And, and right now, this kind of turning point in the retreat where we're starting now to look more at process. So that's what I want to talk about for the rest of the time here. What are we looking at? What are we discovering? What is true? What's true? So this is the second music. The second music. The Buddha named it. Three. He said there are three. First one is the lens of impermanence, anicca. The second one is the lens of unreliability, which is dukkha. 
And the third is the lens of interbeing, or anatta. In one of the suttas, the Buddha says, just as among the footprints of all living beings, there's none that surpasses the elephant's footprint. You can put all the other ones inside the elephant's footprint. He says, so too is the concept of impermanence paramount among all other concepts. Impermanence is a really important truth. And we can hear all about it, right? We know conceptually, sure, everything changes. But there's different levels of knowing. We know it conceptually, we need to hear about it. There's a contemplative knowing. Some of you have been talking about this. You reflect on impermanence. Okay, how am I noticing it right now? What's true? How have I experienced this in my life? You can see impermanence with your children or your parents. And then the deeper way of knowing, we need all three, the deeper way of really is feeling it in your cells. A very felt sense level, what does impermanence, what is it? So even as I'm talking, think about that. You can think about it, you can listen, you can think about it, and then see if you can feel it. See if you can feel it. So of course there's the obvious sense of impermanence, like go to the Grand Canyon, Right? Geological time. There's all these layers and whoa big. You know, sometimes it's hard for our minds to even grasp the spans of time. The way stars are born. That's big. Big impermanence. There's a middle kind of impermanence that we can see in our own bodies. We're mortal. And we were joking today in one group, like, have you noticed that you're aging? We kind of pretend that we're not, you know, anybody think like, I actually feel a lot younger than my body is, you know, like what is gray hair and wrinkles and and sort of joke about like, how is it to be middle-aged? I don't feel middle-aged. I am technically, but whoa, it's weird. Identity crisis. So the mortal sense of just seeing our bodies age, right? Someone is like, sorry for bad news. But we're kind of like born into this. The moment you're born, we're aging. And if we're lucky, we get to experience old age. So middle sense. And then there's like this very subtle momentary sense of change. Can you feel it even like in the words changing? In your breath changing every moment? And... In terms of this deep understanding of impermanence, we have to go to all those levels. We have to feel it. Like, actually, we keep trying to hold on. We keep assuming that things are permanent, like we're permanent, and we have a personality that stays the same. But can you hold on to any of it? I mean, now, 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 now. You're changing. It's like trying to hold on to a river. It's flowing by. Right? And Jack Cornfield talks about how it's like a rope that's moving through our hands and we keep trying to hold it and we get rope burn because it's passing. And I think maybe this is one reason why we stay deluded in the assumption of permanency, right? We feel grief. We think we're going to feel it forever. We feel joy. We think, I'm good. I'm going to have a joy retreat. And then, <laughs> right, next moment. <laughs> 
So one reason I think we stay in that permanency is that when we open to this truth deeply, it is really scary. It's hard to grok this truth. The truth of dying. Every moment is dying, 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 dying. We don't like that. So we have to really be patient. We have to take our time with this. Rinpoche, Mingyur Rinpoche, he says, to bring an end to suffering, we need to cut through dualistic habits of perception and the illusions that hold them in place, not by fighting or suppressing them, but by embracing and exploring them. So yes, we have to go through these phases of resistance and fear, but also, you've probably felt this, tuning to impermanence can be a huge relief. We're not resisting that. Oh. We love what's true, actually. Can you feel that sense of, okay, if I don't resist change, there's a deep peace that's possible. I remember seeing this momentariness in a, I had a a moment with a bee in the garden down here. I was on retreat and I liked walking in the garden because it was the best place to walk, most beautiful. And the bee was like totally hanging out in the flower, so cute, like big fat bumblebee. And I was watching and it was like every moment was freeze frame, the way it moved. Everything became very pixelated. I was like, wow, change, 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 change. And I felt so much delight. Like, oh, that's all that life is. It's like pixel, 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 pixel. Awe and amazement can come. Second music. So the second uh, characteristics of truth of dukkha often translated as suffering, stress, unreliability. I like the phrase, this is from Trungpa Rinpoche, he says, the genuine heart of sadness. When we really look at truth, it kind of breaks us. Impermanence breaks us. We've got dukkha, dukkha. I mean, you've had pain in your body, Right? This is also the nature of the body is that it's breaking down. It gets sick. So that's deeply true. And we resist, oh my gosh, think about the industry of like health. If you just get your body together and keep it that way, you're fine. You're set. Right? Powerful, powerful belief. How is it to surrender to like the nature of the body is to feel pain and sickness? Not all the time. But dukkha dukkha. Then we have Nama dukkha, which is actually the suffering of things being good. Like our birthday. I just had a birthday last week. It was great. Where is that birthday now? It's gone. Did you feel that? Do you feel that on your birthday? It's like the one day of the year. But it's passing. We can't hold on to it. So even when we kind of get things all in order and we have these moments of like grace, like, oh, it's all working so well. We have this underlying foreboding that it's not going to stay that way. That's dukkha. That's also dukkha. And then there's this sankara dukkha, which is just the very basic like agitation of being alive. 
Have you felt that in your body? Like you lie down to sleep at night, do you feel this kind of like brrrr? Those of us with insomnia, you'll know, like, uh, buzz. The kind of, that's the underlying impermanence. Like, you have a house, you have to clean it. And you clean it, and it gets dirty again. Like, again, and again, and again. Groundhog day, right? That's like the underlying agitation of this very subtle kind of dukkha. So Bruce Tiffs, who's a Buddhist psychologist, he's, he calls this the fundamental aggression towards reality. Like there's dukkha and then we're resisting it all the way. If I just did this, I could feel better. If I just wasn't dissociated, I would be practicing better. If I was sleeping, I'd be better. If I was eating differently, I'd be better, right? I mean, so much of that. Fixing, controlling, fixing, controlling. You know, sometimes we say it's like rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It's going down. Right? Can we feel that? Do you feel that? So he says when we say yes to this truth, we devote ourselves to the truth of unreliability, there can be a deep kind of peace and equanimity. Equanimity. It doesn't mean we're just surrendering to being suffering. We, Out of compassion, we want to do whatever we can, but we also know can't control everything. So Mathieu Ricard, who's this wonderful French monk, he says, one of the main pursuits of Buddhism is to bridge the gap between the way things appear and the way things are. That approach doesn't come just from a curiosity to investigate phenomena. It arises from the understanding that an incorrect perception of reality inevitably leads to suffering. Grasping to solid reality into the notion of an independent self in particular, engenders a host of afflictive mental states and afflictive emotions that are the primary cause of mind-made suffering. So how is it to devote ourselves to this reality that we can't control things? I love this again, Mingyur Rinpoche, like waves on the ocean, all things are impermanent. I will accept whatever happens and make it my friend. And I think when we do, we give ourselves to this. My experience is that there's a kind of softening, like, oh yeah, genuine heart of sadness. We're listening to that underlying music in a way that's gentle. And that actually that leads to compassion. Not resisting it means like, oh yeah, we're all in the same boat. It's hard. It's hard to be a human being. And that, that compassion can also be a portal to what's true. So what's true, what's true is also that we aren't alone. You might really feel alone. We have this sense of separateness. But again, when we're really devoted to that second music, what we notice is that all is connected. It's an interbeingness. There's nobody here controlling the show. There's no possessor. There's no independent agent. There are forces. There are forces in the mind. There's forces in the heart. 
There's all this sort of causes and conditions that lead to experience and thoughts and stories. But they're dreams. They're dreams. We're dreaming ourselves into existence. And that separation is just an illusion. Because this body is made up of food and earth and water that was brought by other human beings, right? This body will return to the earth. Can't hold on to any kind of self. When you look, you can't find it. Where are your thoughts? Where is your mind? You can't find it. So this sense of interbeingness, and I was saying this in one group, Joseph has a great poem about this, see if I can find it, about intimacy. When we're really, really deep with that aloneness, and there's a kind of poignancy there, like letting yourself be touched by that sense of, it's like a quivering of the heart that Andrea was talking about yesterday. Oh, there's such intimacy. There's like the whole world is touching you, right? Because you're not different. It's all connected. It's all relationship. And that, in that way, it's all love. The whole thing is just about that. We also have to go through a lot of layers, right? To go through layers of like, I don't understand not-self. This doesn't make sense. I feel so separate. So yeah, I guess you can reason yourself through, but how do I have that experience? You know, someone was saying, I haven't felt non-dual yet. (laughs) So how do we have to have a lot of patience? Have to trust that actually there's never been a self here to begin with, so you don't have to get rid of anything. It's always already already been empty. It's always already been connection and belonging. It's like loving ourselves back into that truth of, of wholeness. And we have to go slow, just like with impermanence, because sometimes it can be such a shock. Emptiness can be a shock to the system. I think that was a little bit of my pounding heart, like, whoa, there's no ground. And sometimes we use this metaphor of, like, these first tastes of emptiness can feel like you just jumped out of an airplane. Right? And then you think, oh, but it's empty, you know, it's okay, I've got got my backpack on. (laughs) You look down, you're like, well, at least I got my parachute. And then there's another moment of seeing like, oh, wait, actually, I don't have parachute on, (laughs) right? More terror, like more jolt, shock. Then, then you really do look down and you see that there is no ground either. So there's an acculturation, a kind of resting back into this emptiness that actually feels like home. It's the most intimate truth that you know, that your body knows. It's a deeper kind of knowing. That's why we keep saying stay in the body because the body knows this. So emptiness can be scary, but my partner says, they say, emptiness is really like a big teddy bear. We like it. It's like the safest thing. Secure attachment. Now, secure attachment to emptiness, mm, that might feel strange at first. But the way I found my way is like, yes, emptiness, but it's fullness and it's full of love. It's full of connection. That's all there is. 
And we can see this in our teachers. There was one teacher I had who was so joyful. We'd been talking about joy some, like, joy is part of this. You can feel happy. You can feel delight. And he did all the time. He traveled around just from place to place teaching. And his favorite thing to do would be to go to amusement parks. He loved them. Because he liked being, like, the fear, the surprise of, like, the drop or the, you know, the what, roller coasters would put him in touch with that intimacy. Like, oh, so alive. What's going to happen next? We don't know. He loved that. He was so joyful all the time. And that kind of joy was, like, contagious, you know? You feel happy when you're around him. He's, like, always playful, joking. That's the, I think that's the kind of the blessing of this practice, lightheartedness. It can feel heavy, definitely. We have to feel. We have to let ourselves open to all the feelings. But also, there's a levity. Important not to forget that. So just to conclude, this this kind of joy, I think, really comes from giving ourselves wholeheartedly. From devoting ourselves to what's true, what's really true. And for different people, it might be different things. Maybe emptiness sounds inspiring. Maybe non-dualism sounds inspiring. Maybe freedom and liberation. Maybe it's love and compassion. So it doesn't matter the words. More like, what does your heart long for? What flavor of freedom do you feel in you? Do you feel it's possible in you? And then when you don't feel it possible, you rely on the accompaniment of the sangha. So we need this heartfelt uh, reverence, this giving our heart to something bigger. Because the heart knows how to listen to that second music. And so just to end, this is my favorite quote. I find ways to bring it in every time because I love it so much. So this is also Mathieu Ricard. And he's talking about how then the world becomes a, a magical display when we have really seen these truths, anicca, dukkha, anatta, this is what we see. He says, this is the way enlightened beings relate to everything. Their world is made of rainbows. Everything briefly appears, then gradually or suddenly disappears. Imagine how your relationship to the world would change if you realized it's all made of rainbows. You're sitting on a rainbow. You're holding a rainbow in your hands. You go to sleep on a rainbow bed and cover yourself with a rainbow blanket. You eat and drink rainbows. You put rainbow clothes on a rainbow body and you make love to a rainbow mate. When your rainbow house disappears, it's no big deal. That's just what rainbows do. So we can just sit back for a moment or two, just let the words wash and settle in the body again.
Maybe I'll just read the second music. You can listen again, see what you hear. The second music. Now I understand that there are two melodies playing, one below the other, one easier to hear, the other lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades, yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips as the sound of the names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover. If the truth of our lives is what is playing, the telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change, becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. Thank you so much for your kind attention. So there's a little bit of time to uh, yeah, transition before tea, and then uh, be back at 6.30, for that's it. Okay, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.